Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today is my colleague Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to have two special guests on the show. Halal Mia is an investment research analyst at the Share Centre and Delith Richards is head of funds research at Kleinwood Benson. In today's show, we're going to look at investing in Japan for income. We'll also discuss the benefits of investment trusts that were originally set up by wealthy families to manage their wealth. And plus, we have an update on how lots of income drawdown providers have been changing their fee structures. But first, to this week's portfolio clinic. Simon is 68 and um, he's retired and he thinks he's not going to need to draw fully on his self-invested personal pension. He is therefore investing for growth so that he can leave more to his children. And the portfolio is invested entirely in direct holdings in company shares. Now, Halal and Delith were the expert commentators on this portfolio. Halal, you thought that um, Simon's shares only portfolio wasn't really properly balanced between sectors and companies. So how do you think he was going wrong? I think um, while he does have some big blue chips uh, from various parts of the world, um, I just think there's too much of a concentration, probably towards stocks that he he's aware of and, and knows quite a bit about. The issue here is I think these stocks are generally very industrial or technology focused, and two of his stocks are slightly on the large side. So he's got Unilever, which is a company we certainly like very much, but at 18, 18% of the portfolio, almost 20, I think that's uh, a bit too much. And then he's got um, 3M, uh, the US uh, industrial group, Again, 15% of the portfolio, I'd say slightly too much there. So ideally, uh, for most of our clients, we generally recommend to actually consider having a maximum exposure to any one particular stock of about uh, 10% uh, as a rough idea. It's just for practical purposes. I mean, generally, we'd like to see the maximum weight of each individual stock slightly lower, but I think uh, 10% or so is practical for most private private investors. Do you think maybe he hasn't rebalanced enough as he's gone along and then the stock's done well or he said, oh, I I like that and I've bought a bit more and not really paid attention? I think that could partially, partly be the case simply because it looks like he's a bit of a buy buy and hold investor, which there's nothing wrong with that. And I would say a lot of these investments, the engineering focused ones, have actually done relatively well uh, over the years. So you consider uh, we had the dot com crash probably didn't invest too much there. Then we've had the financial crisis. I know he's got a few banks in there, but he's not overly exposed. And more recently, we've had the oil oil and gas and now the commodities areas, which, which aren't doing too well. But his exposure isn't towards these in general. So I think he's done relatively well. He's bought and hold, held on to them. But I think going forward, um, the portfolio isn't defensive enough for me. And the fact that he is... Is looking to uh, take some of well, t- take some payments from the um, from the pension fund in about uh, six or seven years. I would say is now is probably time to start considering making the portfolio a bit more defensive. And there just aren't enough defensive sectors in here. And I think most of the stocks are actually fa- very cyclical, apart from Unilever. And he's also got Reckitt Benkiza. But what I would say there is these are very similar companies. And um, these two put together, uh, you're almost talking about uh, 25% of the portfolio. Again, too much. So, um, uh, Dalith, um, you, you 
made some good comments on this portfolio too. I mean, actually, the, the investor, Simon, said he wasn't very keen on investing in funds at all because he was worried about charging levels and duplicating charges. And I'm going to quote him. He said, perhaps this is vainglorious, but with so many funds to choose from, one might as well have a go oneself and invest directly where one can, one can have some idea of what one is doing. I mean, that I'm sure a lot of our listeners might share that sentiment, but you felt that there, some value could be added through funds? Can yes, you, yeah. absolutely. I think the greatest concern here is that his, um, Simon's portfolio is concentrated in 16 instruments, and albeit we can look at what the market cycles are doing, but there's very, very specific company-specific risk in, in a portfolio that is that small. And when one looks at an investment portfolio of generally this size, we would encourage a greater element of diversification. I mean, it's very easy to pick stock-specific crisis stories at the moment. We have Glencore and we can look across other parts of the market which have suffered. But whilst appreciating there is a concern about costs and that by a direct equity selection in a portfolio, there may be a feeling that you're not having to pay an external manager, there are so many low-cost ways of compiling and composing portfolios these days. In in the submission, I know that I referenced the Vanguard Global Equity Market um, low-cost passive, but there are other low-cost index funds. Uh, as recently as this week, uh, Fidelity have launched even lower price index funds. So it is very easy to find very large diversification of risk with low-cost elements of, of, of passives. And especially when you think about lifestyle investment here, as he's moving towards needing that capital payment, I, I echo the point, he, he should be looking to perhaps take away some of the risk in his current portfolio. Yeah. I think I'll clarify that. that. I mean, I introduced him as he's going for growth to leave it for his children, but he's actually got, wants 25% of the fund to pay off a, a mortgage, a mortgage yeah. uh, in a few years' time. So it, it, he's got that balance there of going to need some of the capital and the rest can be left to grow. So that, that's what you're referencing there. Absolutely. So crystallise some of that maturity in the portfolio where he's made gains and put that into something that's going to give a much broader market correlation. There are also some quite exciting things that you can, can do with funds. I know you mentioned uh, you mentioned passives, but you also recommended um, an active um, investment trust as well, didn't you? Yes, Yes, and that, that investment trust was specifically selected with, with the idea of it being a, a relatively low-cost and diversified... It was Scottish um, mortgage. It is was, that right? It was yes. Scottish Mortgage, which is one of the, 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 the longest established investment trust, and, and that has a global global index mandate. And again, that, that will depend on an e each individual client's expectations, and some people may not want to have such broad market exposure. They might prefer to have more of a regional um, conviction, so they might prefer to have something with more of a UK bias, for example, rather than the global index bias. But that is one um, investment trust that we feel offers very good value for money, especially for people who are very concerned about layers of fees on fees. And uh, there was a, Halal, you, you sort of mentioned that he should be looking at funds and your reason was the lack of emerging markets exposure. Can you explain that? Yeah, so looking at the portfolio, his uh, exposure to the UK is about 35%, US is about 43% and then rest is in, is in Europe. So he's really got nothing else in other regions. But what I would say about the portfolio and the types of stocks he has is, take for example Unilever and Racket Benkiza, yes they're listed over here in the UK, but these are companies that are 
pretty rapidly expanding into the emerging market. So we do have some emerging exposure there, but I would still say it's probably not enough. Um, and I would say to, to get a good level of exposure to that sector. And the problem with the emerging markets is the fact that it takes a bit more knowledge uh, of the of the region to to actually know what you're buying into. So this is why I think a fund or an investment trust for for those sorts of areas is is a better route. I mean, we, we don't want to detract from his um, share, shares only portfolio, but um, really he could he perhaps needs to um, swallow his um, his aversion to to funds a little and and look at those. So thank you very much. Now moving on, I'm going to do, uh, look at this week's um, big theme article in which we look at um, investing in Japan for income. Um, Japan's economic recovery has been one of the most compelling stories in recent years. Um, But with Japanese companies hugging profits to their chests, the region has been somewhat off limits to income investors. Um, The corporate tide, though, may be turning. And Kate, you've been looking into this. How, How are things changing? Well, and as you say, Japan just hasn't been a place for income investors for a long time, and that is because companies have tended to keep uh, the capital on their balance sheets rather than paying it out to shareholders, um, either in the form of dividends or, or in share buybacks. Um, but as the third arrow of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's package of reforms, it's all aimed at corporate governance, and it's all about kind of boosting companies' return on equity and you know making them use that capital to, to kind of give it back to shareholders. So there's clearly a big kind of trend here, and that's culminated in a stewardship code, um, which launched this year. But also in the company, the the pension fund, which is the world's biggest pension fund, has just changed its mandate and is now investing half in equities. So it's become an enormous shareholder in Japanese equities. So that's quite a lot of pressure on companies to start kind of giving back. So with all that in mind, Japanese fund managers are saying that actually things are changing and they're seeing dividends within their portfolios really growing, kind of double-digit increases in dividends. So the question is whether that's kind of dripping down into dividends coming off these funds. And that does seem to be the case. Things are increasing. Yields on these funds are increasing. I mean, this is not to say they're paying out amazing yields and you can get big income from Japan. That's not the case. But it's more a sense that things are slowly shifting. So now if you'd written Japan off because you just thought, you know, I can't get any income at all, that's that's no longer the case. Um, Halal, um, what's your what's your view here? Do you think it's it's an area we should be looking at to, to sort of diversify one's income portfolio? Yes, I agree. While at the moment um, the Japanese, well, look at the Japanese index. You've got dividend yield of about two percent. Uh, the UK index uh, has a dividend yield of, of about three and a half percent. So there's a big gap there. But I think um, if Japanese companies do change their uh, their strategy, become more shareholder friendly. Uh, we may see their their dividend payout ratio, which is at the moment in the region of about 20 to 30 percent, uh, rise up to more Western standards. Uh, you look at the FTSE 100, I think we're in the region of about 50 to 60 percent in terms of the payout ratio. So it's not a case of at the moment dividends are very good. It's just, I think, a case of going forward, the dividend payout ratios and therefore the income from stocks. Uh, stock investing in Japan is going to improve. Do you think there's any risks that investors need to be aware of here with Japan? I mean, I don't see a lot of Japan Japanese holdings in the reader portfolios, actually. I mean, 
maybe they're, they're a bit worried about it. Well, there's always the currency issues, obviously. <laughs> Japan is one of those safe haven currencies and uh, people do tend to flock to it every now and then and vice versa as well. So you will tend to see a bit of volatility here and there. Um, but I think uh, the Japanese economy, while it's improving, in terms of growth, it still seems to be... Uh, re- re- relatively slow going for the time being, but certainly I think uh, give it some years and uh, if we see some general stabilisation in various parts of the world, especially, say, uh, China, uh, we may see more confidence in the Japanese stock market and uh, things begin to look a bit more reassuring in Japan overall. Oh, Delith, um, can I ask you, I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a funds um selector really you're a fund expert um are there any particular favorite japan funds that we think you think we should be looking at here i mean what's your what's your view i can certainly give some comment on those but in some context i have to say that we we have a very low conviction for japan on on the basis of of the equity risk premium that you get from the equity market in japan um we we consider other global markets offer much better values so we have actually removed uh, Jap- Japanese expressions from our client oh, portfolios. Oh, entirely gone. No so Japan we, we, at all. We have had no Japan in our portfolios, which um, you know, Japan has and, and continues to be a cha- challenging market in many ways with the, the currency um, challenges it presents as well. And, and it's a particularly difficult market for income-orientated investors. And I, I echo the comments about um, you know, what the impact of the government pension scheme have had. Um, and the new JPX 400 index. And it's clear that many firms are seeking to be included in that index. Um, And we've done some analysis actually looking at at both the kind of the the dividend factors of of Japanese companies and also looking at how much they've spent on CapEx. So they're they're clearly, um, you know, they they are trying to change the metrics. Um, We could see that in in 2009, some research I've got in front of me that said they spent 7.4 times more on CapEx than they gave back to shareholders in 2009. Um, But by last year, that had fallen to 5.3 times. But but if you compare that to the US, it's more like one-to-one. So they've still got quite a long way to go. more recent concerns we've seen, yes, we're encouraged by some signs of improvement, but weak exports, strengthening currency still make markets difficult. Um, I've been a long-time follower of um, Jupiter Japan Income Fund, Simon Summerall's fund. Um, we, 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 we like Simon, we like the, 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 the process that the, that the selectors there have had, but the um, income distribution from that fund is, is very low. It's sub 2% at the moment. Um, our other, you know, the other recommendation we probably suggest looking at, if you wish to allocate to Japan for income, would be the Moran, um, Moran Wright's Nippon Yield uh, Fund, and that's not to be um, confused with the Warren Wright fund that delisted after kind of basically, basically exploding in 2010. But, um, you know, I, I think that you've got to consider all of that in, in the context of the volatility of investing in Japan and the currency question and whether you wish to take a, a hedged or a non-hedged expression into Japan. And I think those seasoned investors who've looked at the Japanese market over many years will find that they have made that call incorrectly many times through different market cycles. So, um, you know, Japan, not quite at your peril, but Japan with some caution is what I would suggest. I think uh, the feature that we run in the magazine does have some options there for hedged and unhedged share classes of funds. That's right, Kate, isn't it? It is, although actually a quick note on the hedging is that... um, you can kind of protect your returns with hedging, but but you can't actually protect dividends um, 
because it, dividends are too unpredictable for managers to, you know, to hedge. So if you do take a hedge share class, then your returns might not be eaten away by, by currency weakness, but your dividends would still be kind of damaged. So that's something to bear in mind. Uh, well, lots lots there to think about, about the Japan issue. Um also in the magazine this week, we've, we've, we're looking at um, a number of investment trusts that were originally set up by wealthy families to manage their wealth. And in, in some cases, um, the family members are represented on the board um, and they're also major shareholders. Um, the families may argue that because they're looking after their own interests as, um, as well as the other shareholders, that the interests there are aligned. Um, but um, Delith, um, can I ask you what you think the benefits might be of investing in a, a family type investment trust and are there any that you particularly like? I mean, I perhaps might be giving you a contrarian view on that because <laughs> you can certainly um, point to some benefits of aligned interests, but they also give raise for concerns and those concerns would be partly the, the, the free float that doesn't exist because they are so broadly held by families and perhaps the tools that are available to them are, are slightly more limited because as they come up to their maximum threshold of 50% they're unable to perhaps use tools to, to kind of measure um, discount and premium like share buybacks um, so I, I for example would point to um, if you looked at Caledonia for example where the family there owns 48.5% of the current issue, they have got very little leeway to be able to go and exercise some controls over discount and premium by share buybacks, which other trusts would not have the same restrictions on. Um, perhaps also some of these family trusts, which have got very long tenure, and, and you know, f f they, they've been... They've been created to try and um, provide a total return delivery, a whole, almost a whole of wealth delivery. And the way that we look at constructing portfolios, we prefer to have high conviction in different regional markets than perhaps always allocating to a global total return strategy. So although I can make comments um, and we have a deep investment specialist within the team, uh, they're not particularly instruments that I have hugely high conviction for versus other instruments available to us. Hello. Um, um, these family investment trusts are actually quite popular among investors, chronicle readers, things like um, Rick Capital and, um, uh, you know, um, the Rothschild one, um, because they they are uh, into sort of wealth preservation. And if you feel that you want to, you're, you're, you're more, more of a cautious investor, um, that they can seem appealing. Do, do you Would you agree with that strategy? Do you like that way of thinking about things? In some ways, I agree uh, for the reasons for investing in these types of uh, investment trusts because the controlling families are looking at wealth preservation. And if that's what you're after, um, your investment goals should, in theory, be in line with, with the investment trust. But um, I just think that there are a whole wealth of other instruments out there and we shouldn't be so narrowly focused on just looking at these instruments for the sake of uh, of, of their particular characteristics. Um, great. I mean, I think one of the advantages that we've cited in the article is that you know that they do select centre select, select um, highly regarded managers to manage the money, mm. and and they as a family they keep a very close eye on the the progress of the mm. trust. So you've got sort of an extra um, element there. I, th I think we we, we could keep pointing to in some instances there's a perception that some of the trusts are family trusts and in fact 
they are less controlled by the family now than they were in the past. So um, they were originally set up by families, but now the shareholding is very, very small. Uh, yeah, I think Witton is one of those, isn't it? Uh, that was originally set up by the Henderson family, but now it's got a tiny percentage is owned by them. These funds do have a very long track record. They have been around for a long, long time. So there is something going on, something bright that's happening in terms of the way the, the funds are managed. Great. Well, thank you very much for your in- input there. Um, we'll talk about an, um, a, pen- an issue which will be close to um, um, a lot of our um, listeners' hearts, which is pensions and the new pension freedoms, which happened in were introduced in April. And since then, we've seen um, lots of um, platforms tra- change their charging structures, including the charging structures on income drawdown. That's the mechanism by which you can draw uh, money out of your pension in retirement post. 55. Um, Kate, you've been trying to make sense of the charge changes. Um, what do you think investors need to be aware of? Um, well, yeah, I, ha- I have been trying to make sense of it and it is very confusing <laughs> um, because there are so many different charges and they all kind of layer on top of each other. Um, I think some of the key things to, to bear in mind are just the changes around some of these new options. So particularly um, flexible drawdown. Um, a lot of platforms have cut fees in that area, so it's something to, to look at. Um, in the past, most platforms would have charged, or a lot of them anyway, charged drawdown setup costs. So if you wanted to go into income drawdown, you, you would pay to set that up. And now quite a few platforms have scrapped that altogether. Um, so AJ Bell, your investors, has cut that, Hargreaves. Um, so it's, it's something to look at, you know, will you still be paying setup costs? And then a lot of them have cut the annual fee that you pay to go into income drawdown as well. Um, So that's also worth having a look at. And then I think the thing to bear in mind is that when you're looking at this kind of menu of fees now, there there are legacy ones, you know, from the kind of old structure. And those will be layered on top of new fees for for the new options. So uncrystallized um, lump sums. If if you're just taking out lump sums, for example, that's different fees for if you want to go into drawdown. So I think really the thing to think about is which option are you going to use? And you need to make sure that that's the one you're looking at when you're looking at these platform charge fees. It does all sound very, very confusing. And do you, do you feel that the overall pitch is that investors are going to benefit from cheaper costs? So, I mean, we mentioned a lot of charge cuts there, but mm. are, are the platforms adding on fees in other areas that we're not aware of? I mean, is, is, is it in- I mean, I, I don't get the sense they're adding fees, but I think there's definitely a sense that it's not going to be easy to make the most of the co- of the cost cuts potentially um i mean particularly just because it's so hard to compare like with like here um i mean even if one platform has cut costs somewhere you'll still be paying it's you know it's annual fee and then a platform fee maybe so if you're trying to compare with another platform that hasn't cut the same cost maybe that one would still be cheaper you know it's just very hard to compare but it, there definitely have been quite a lot of fee cuts here so is it, i think Overall, it will be a benefit to investors, but it will take a lot of time for people to kind of work out what's right for them and where those cost cuts are. So in this in this week's magazine, you've worked very hard to put together a, a large table with, where all the, the charges are detailed. Yeah, a lot of time spent in Excel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and obviously we're going to progress that and try and do some more analysis of what 
what might be cheapest for different yeah. types of investors in future magazines. I mean, I think the the issue here that is that uh, is a really about the general bonnet benefits of keeping costs low for investors, and and how much investors should be focusing on charges because I know a lot of people will be focusing a lot on their in, in actual investment performance and, and maybe not paying as much attention to charges as they should. Helen, I can see you nodding your head. Um, what you know? How, how how do you think investors should look, should look at this or balance? And how often should you review charges on your portfolio, for example? I think you should do it at least once a year. But um, looking at the um, our investors' portfolio, one thing I do credit him for is being. Uh, not too active in buying and selling because that will almost certainly eat away at the portfolio and quite often uh, you can make some very bad decisions by being too active um, so his buy and hold strategy I think for the longer term should be should be relatively good but um, investment charges don't just look at your um, your dealing charges also look at the admin charges that you're paying with your fund manager or broker and also with funds obviously there's the annual management charge to to consider um, I certainly am a believer in uh, exchange traded uh, trackers and uh, where generally uh, you've got relatively attractive admin charges. I mean, they're, they're, they're the products seem to be getting cheaper and cheaper, don't they, Dallas? Yes. It's, uh, it's quite, it's quite I mean, extraordinary over the last year how, how cheap things are going. It is exciting, although you rather wish that everybody would issue their best figures almost together because it's the process of attrition by one basis point at a time that can be light, slightly frustrating. But the outcome, the end reduction in, in cost is only to be welcomed. Um, I just echo the focus on OCFs. I, I um I sit in as an advisor to a trust and recently I I was um, able to ask some questions on that about what were the on, ongoing charges for that particular um, mandate and it's it's not all not not every advisor has that information to their hand and it and it's important all investors should be able to challenge and ask what is the cost of my investment on a look through basis so question question and question what your advisor is charging you and what the underlying implementation costs are. We've done lots of analysis looking at the OCFs um, across uh, active managed funds and they've significantly come down post RDR in, 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 in the market as a whole. So that is to be welcomed and we continue to see price competition from the major providers. Okay. Well, I just, I just for those who don't know, the OCF is the ongoing charges figure, and you can usually find that in the fact sheet of the fund or the investment trust, and it's definitely one to go and look at. So I think I want to thank our um, our special guests um, for their sensible advice for investors in on this show. Um, so it's a thank you to Dalith Richards of um, Climate Benson and Helal Mia of the Share Centre. And also thanks to my colleague Kate Bealey of Investors Chronicle. Um, you can read more about Japan, family investment trusts and income drawdown charges in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.